Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. I wasn't quite loud enough. I'm, we need another one. Full orb, full throated. I want your whole belly in this one, okay? Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. That is awesome. The whole neighborhood heard that one. That is perfect. All right. So this is the this is the Sunday morning where we celebrate what we're going to celebrate two days from now, just as a day that we picked, you know. And that is is this incredible birth of Christ, and it's at this time, this celebratory joy, that we read the night there were that night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them, "Don't be afraid," he said. "I bring." you good news that will bring great joy to all people the savior yes the messiah the lord has been born today in bethlehem the city of david and you will recognize him by this sign you will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger and suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others the armies of heaven praising god and saying glory to god in the highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. And this is that moment, you can just, that cataclysmic, the whole of the heavenly host, they're not going to let just one angel say it. They're all in on this. This is an amazing thing that is taking place, and they are praising God, the whole of them. It's, it's, it's almost as if there's just an explosive moment that is taking place in heaven about this thing that is happening. Well, what's this thing that is happening? I want you to ponder it for just a second. Think about it. This is God. You know the creator of all the universe? This is God appearing as a baby. Coming as one of us, but even more remarkably than just as a baby. This is, let me make it clear, we cannot comprehend the fullness of what's taking place in this moment. As I'm going to talk about in a second, even the angels don't really get the fullness of it. But I want you to just, just for a moment, I want you to do something. This is just an analogy, okay? You know, they say in about our brains that when we get to a certain size, a certain scale, our brains just can't measure it. Our brains can't understand certain things in scale. Just as an example here, this isn't a political sermon whatsoever or anything, but when you look at, when you look at a trillion, say a trillion dollars, okay? When you look at how big a number is a trillion, your brain cannot actually understand it. And let me just show you how I can say that. Because see, what we do in order to make our brains understand it a little bit is we do these little tricks in order to make us understand relatively. So here's the deal. If you spent a million dollars a day, anybody want a budget of a million dollars a day for your Quicken books? Okay, all right, could you handle that? All right, a million dollars a day from the day that Jesus was born, how long would it take you to get to, say, a billion, which is an awful lot of money, right? How long would it take you? About a little under three years, okay? A little under three years, you get to a billion. Okay, so how much more than a billion is a trillion? Well, you know, maybe a hundred or maybe a couple of hundred years. I mean, after all, in three and a half years, we got all the way to a billion. It can't be that much more to a trillion. Do you realize that if you spent a million dollars a day, every single day, we're not even close to a trillion right now, 2,000 years later? In fact, it's almost another thousand years before we get there. You see, I heard the wows. See, that's what does it, right? All of a sudden you go, 
dang, man, I thought, you know, that the one was a little closer to the other one. Because <laughs> that's the way our brains work. They cannot comprehend the hugeness. Now, what I want to say is, we cannot understand the hugeness. <laughs> we cannot understand, not really, the creator of the whole of the universe coming down as a baby. It just, it just right? We can do things, and we're going to do some things today to try and get closer to there. But I do want to show you something, because this is the backbone in which we're going to build our sermon today. I want to show you something. When the angel said, I bring you good news and joy to all people, the Savior, the Messiah, did the angels, was this something the angels were expecting? You know, I mean, way back when, like before there was even mankind and all stuff, and the angels were with God, and they were going, well, you know, he's going to make these men, and then he's going to have to redeem them, and then this stuff's going to have to happen. Or even sometime during mankind's history before the cross. Did you, do you realize that the angels, the scripture says, the angels were peering into what was happening with mankind because they didn't get it. They knew that there was a problem. There was a separation that had taken place between God's creation, us, and God. And there was this separation, and they were going, the angels were looking into it, trying to understand how it would happen, trying to understand how to be saved. And, and what I want to tell you is, is all of a sudden one day, you know, they know Father, Son, and Holy Spirit on the throne with the lightning and the seas of glass and the, 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 the things that the universe in the natural only points to a part of the fullness in the spiritual. Because who God is in fullness is so much more than even the universe, right, in all of its glory. And so the point is, is there's this thing that's going on. And even the angels, when, when, they, when they see one of the members of the Godhead, Jesus, become a baby, Emmanuel, God with us, they're going, this is incredible. <laughs> see, I think we read this scripture, and what we say about this scripture is we say, they're telling us how wonderful things are. Now, I think that they are doing that, very much so. They're announcing, angels announce, they're messengers, right? But I want to tell you something. I think they're also astounded. <laughs> I think they're blown away. Read it. You know what I mean? And they're joined by a vast armies of heaven, praising God. Glory to God in the highest. Peace on earth to those who have God's peace. You can't believe what's going on right now. God, that one that we know up here, he's just become this baby. He's with you. This is amazing. This is mind-blowing. This is Wow. <laughs> This is what I think is going, taking place in heaven. And as great as that moment is, it's not as great as the ones we're going to get to in a little bit here about what comes out of this moment of the incarnation. We're going to even better places than that. So with that in mind, who, oh, Eric Rasmussen, this is awesome. Eric Rasmussen is one of these guys, when we, when we hand out ornaments, we get an entire bucket and then we give it to Eric for all the things that he does and just who he is and his family and the whole nine yards. An amazing man of God. So pray for the sermon. Pray for another church. Lord, uh, we just ask that you bless Kurt and his uh, teaching to us for this service. And then also, Lord, there's a lot of people who come at Christmas time that may not hear of you otherwise. And we ask that you'd open ears that you would restore what has been eaten away, Lord, that you would touch wounded hearts, Amen. that Christ would be known, both in that way Kurt spoke of, 
in the greatness and in that tenderness of that child. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Okay. Now, I'm going to go a weird place. So I'm going to take a second. Hang in there with me. About three weeks ago, before Sandy Bridge, is it Sandy Bridge? I know it's Newtown, but what, is it Sandy Bridge or Sandy Hook? Sandy Hook. Okay, sorry. All right. Uh, honestly, I, you know, there's a lot of that stuff I just don't watch. I just think the glorification of it and the, it plays on something in us which is not healthy and all that. And if you do, I don't care. But, and I'm not saying anything bad about you or anything else. But I'm just saying for me, it just, you know what I mean? I get the tragedy of it and I let it sink in, but I don't let the media sort of do with other things it wants to do with in order to get me to buy toothpaste, you know? Uh, but the point is, is that I'm walking along in my walk, and all of a sudden God gives me this revelation that I knew clearly was for this morning. And when that happened, I was like, I don't want to talk about this because this isn't very Christmassy. The bottom line, this isn't Christmassy, right? So I didn't want to talk about it. And then Sandy Hook happened, and I just went to the Lord, and I said, I'm not going to talk about that. Because, <laughs> you know, this is just not okay. You know, this is not okay. And actually, then the Lord showed me how come it was more than okay, how it was important. You know, he who causes all things to work together for good, that there's a, there's a thing in here of redemptive quality that, that I just want to share with you. And it goes something like this, okay? I want us to think for a second and understand something. Every baby that's ever been born was born to live for eternity, That's true from the very beginning, and it's true to today. Every baby that's born today is born to live for eternity. Now, that's not how we think, is it? The way that we think is, is we think, well, no, no, babies are born, and then they grow up, and then they have more, then they have babies, and then they get old, and then they die, and that's the life cycle, and that's the way that it goes. But you understand, that's not God's plan. God's plan was people would never taste any kind of death, spiritual or physical that what would happen was, is that people would be born, that they would be in relationship with him who born them, who was the source of life, who is the capital L life, who gives them life, and that they would be in relationship with this life in every decision, in every moment, in every single thing, and that they would be in this oneness, this beautiful relationship with God for all eternity, and they would never taste any physical death or spiritual death or anything else, that they would be with him at every moment forevermore. But instead, what we did was, is that we made our own choices. And when I say that, let me just make it clear. Is there anybody out here who every single choice you've ever made in your entire life, both intentional and unintentional, was completely, fully, richly, awesomely, massively, only God? Anybody? Because if there is, then somebody got it right. Somebody got what God was hoping for, got what God wanted, right? If there isn't, then the rest of the story of the Bible is pretty true, whether you believe in God or not. If you've made choices that you know, whether you believe that there is a God or not, if you've made choices that you knew were something less than the best, something less than the thing that was in your conscience, something less than, but they seemed right to you, and so you went ahead and did them. If you did that, then you're the one that's made the choice to go away from God. You're the one that went away. That's what God says about us. That's what the Bible says, and that's just the practical way of understanding it, no matter if you're a Christian or not, that that's what is being said there. You may not still agree with it, but that's what's being said. We make this choice to go away from him. Right? And in so doing, what happens is, is God gives us 
another, you know, four score and 20 or whatever, you know, 80, maybe 100 years. And he gives us a certain period of time where we are, quote unquote, alive. But what really is happening is, is he's giving us an opportunity to re-choose him. To come back to a place to where we make him Lord, where we, we do the things that it takes in order to be in relationship with him. And I don't mean works, I just mean asking that we do that. And then when we come to him and we ask him and, and then God and all this kind of stuff. So the point is, is see, every, now watch, if you, after you die physically, right, the truth is every baby still lives. Some babies during this period of life made that choice, understood that they'd made a choice to go away from God and now they needed to make a choice to go back to God. And in so doing, when they die, they're with God because that's where they chose to be, right? Now, if you're a sovereignty God person, I know that that's true too, but you've got to just hold on to both ends of that paradox. But the bottom line is, is that God chose you too, but the bottom line is, is there is free will. It's real free will. We need to understand that. We need to live in the truth of that. Because if during this lifetime you choose what God has done for you in order to make a relationship with you, then you're back with him. And if you don't, then you're separated with him after this physical body dies. You're separated from him, but you're still alive. You still live. So every baby is born to live for eternity and does, in fact, live for eternity. Some of them in a great place and some of them in a not great place at all. All right? Every baby that was born in the history of the world was born to live for eternity, except one. There's one baby that was born to die. Born to die. The reason why people die is because they made a choice to separate themselves from life. There's one baby that never made any choice to ever separate himself from God in any way, shape, or form. Ever. And yet he died on a cross. Right? Because that was what God's will was for him. <laughs> so there was one baby that was born to die. And what he was doing in that death was all the consequence, all of the, everybody who'd ever made a choice to separate themselves from God, here was one that had never made that choice, but he made a choice to take upon himself what we had earned in our choice, which was death. He made a choice. And believe me, the guard, remember, when he was praying before he died, before he was crucified, he was, as drops of blood, God, if there's any way to stop this, do it. Because I'm going to be not dead in the physical sense. I'm going to be, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, who was eternally one with God, is going to have this moment of being separated from God in some fashion. I don't know how that was. I don't understand it in completeness. What I do understand is there was something that was so terrible that he was praying us and, and his, his sweat became like drops of blood. It was so heavy because he didn't want this to happen. But he overcame what he wanted. And he chose what God wanted, which was that he should die so that Anybody who was owed death could choose Christ and live forever with God. 
Now, that's the gospel message. That's, that, that's that, the fullness of that great news and so on. And th- this is a really cool revelation. I want to say, at, at the moment, it, I want you to understand something here. Now, we're talking about the angels again. I want you to understand, at the moment that Christ was on that cross, the angels are dumbfounded. They still don't understand everything that's going on here. They still don't get what's actually taking. He was born. He's living with God. He's living with mankind. He's going to be their savior, the Messiah. God's been talking about delivering him, all this kind of stuff. How's it going to happen? And, and they're wondering and they're watching. And all of a sudden, here he is 33 years later, and he's dead on a cross. And the Bible in Revelation talks about this half-hour moment in heaven where there's just no noise. And I think that that's, I don't know that that exact moment, but there's something very much like that that happens at the moment in time at which Christ actually dies. And the angels are going, "Uh, what? How can this be? This doesn't make any sense. We know him. This is God, you know, lightning, flashing, eternal. (laughs) This doesn't make any sense. And I think that they are dumbstruck. Not for a half hour, but for three days. I think they're just watching. What is going to happen? I don't think they know what to do. This is not comprehensible. And then all of a sudden, after three days, there's a breath. This Christ comes back? He raises again? And what they're seeing in the spiritual, the thing that Scripture talks about but that we don't see, in the natural we see something of precursor of it. When Christ dies, graves are opened up and dead people rise. But what happens that the angels are seeing is when Christ rises again, all of a sudden there's this whole group of people that have been in some kind of bondage because of the law of sin and death because they chose to be separated and they are separated. And there's all these people that are captive to this separation. And all of a sudden, they're being released. There's Jesus coming up from the grave. And there's this great train of people behind him. And they're walking out. And the angels are going, oh my gosh. (laughs) Once again, this is incomprehensible. Look at what's happening. These people are getting set free. Oh, it totally makes sense now. This guy never did anything to deserve death, even choosing his own death. And because of that, the grave couldn't hold him. Because he hadn't done anything wrong. So of course he's got to come back. See, it all makes sense all of a sudden. It doesn't make sense beforehand when it's going on. The angels and everybody else are going, what? The disciples, right? What? And all of a sudden he's risen again and then everybody goes, it was so obvious. It was, he is leading this mass of humanity out of their captivity. Right? So what I'm going to say is, is this is the, this is three things right now that are just blowing the angels away. They're astounded by these things. That the infinite, all-powerful creator could ever become a baby? That eternal God could ever die? That Jesus rising from the dead would set mankind free? All of these things were moments that just, right? Just more than I can understand and comprehend. Now, that's cool. That's awesome. We still have something, yet again, better. And to get to it, we need to go to Ruth. 
Ruth is this study that we've been doing for, this is our last one, and we've been studying it. It's been awesome, and, and we found all kinds of buried treasures in this short little book. And to bring everybody up to speed, I'm just going to quickly go over the story with you. What happens is there's this gal, Naomi. She's married to a guy and has two sons. They live in Israel. There is a famine in the land of Israel. In fact, let me show you the map. This is when they're actually coming back. It shows it going this way, but this is Israel over here, and this is Moab over here. And, and you understand this is the wrong side of the tracks over here, okay? Because this is the place that God gave them, and they had a plot of land there, but there was a famine, and they weren't able to survive, and so they left. And they go over to this other thing, Naomi, her husband, and two sons. While they're there, the husband dies. The two sons then marry Moabite women. Now, understand something. Moabite and Jews are not getting along together. Even to this day, there's no Moabites left anymore. But even to this day, Israel is surrounded by people that hate it and would love to destroy it. And you need to understand, even at this point in time, that's still true with the people that live there at that point in time. There's been a succession of neighbors for Israel, but they all hate her and they all want to do away with her. Okay? So the bottom line is, is that there's people that hate her, and, and, and after this, there'll be hundreds of years of war where they're trying to destroy Israel, and Israel is trying to protect itself, and so on. But the bottom line is, is that, is that they're living over here, and the two sons marry these Moabite women. This is very important. Not Jewish women. Very important. Remember, God is after everybody on the face of the earth. Not just his chosen people, or let me put it this way, everybody who chooses him is the one that he chose. Right? That's who the real chosen people are. But anyway, bottom line is, is that what happens is, is that these two sons then die, so now it's Naomi and the two daughters-in-law. Now they're going back over to Israel because it's been a number of years and the famine has ended, and as they're going back, Naomi says, look, I'm poor, I can't help you out, you've got families, go back to your families, let them take care of you, and, and these people, these two women love her and they don't want to do that, but one of them does say, finally, after persuasion, you know, okay, I will go back, but the other one says, no way. Where you go, I'll go, etc. I'll die, you know, may the Lord kill me if I don't protect you and help you and so on. And so what happens, Naomi says, okay. So they go back over into Israel, and as they get back into Israel, then they go back to her hometown, and what happens is, is that Ruth starts to glean, and gleaning is simply this way of poor people staying alive. They follow the harvesters and pick up what's left, and God has told harvesters in Israel not to pick up everything, not to be really good at it. He's told them to be kind of bad harvesters. To leave plenty on the ground so that poor people can, in fact, live. And so that happens. So Ruth is gleaning. Now, it just so happens, except that God's in control all the time, it just so happens that Ruth is working in a relative's place. And it turns out that this relative is one that can be a kinsman redeemer or family redeemer. And here's what that means. Real simple. In the law, it says this. See, God has given everybody a plot of land, and he's given them a thing, and he wants them to stay. He wants these plots of land to stay in the family and so on. And this is being inherited primarily through the male. It does happen to the female sometimes, but primarily through the male. And what happens during this time is this. If an older brother marries a woman and dies, doesn't have any children to inherit the land and keep the land, then that land would end up going to somebody else. What's incumbent upon the next brother is to marry that woman, have a child. That child will then be essentially the older brother's child in terms of all of the rights and the inheritance and all that kind of stuff. That child will, be, will carry forward the older brother's name, not the brother that married and had the child with her. See that? And that's God's way of, of continuing the family name and the land allotments and the ability for families not to grow poor because somebody died and so on. See? 
And so what's going on right there is, is, that, is that this guy, he's not a brother, but he's near enough that he could be a family redeemer. Okay? And so, you know, Naomi says, you could go ask him. And if he says, yeah, it'll work out. And he says, yes, I'll do that. But there's a problem. And the problem is there is a nearer redeemer. A, a, a near family member to you that has the first right of refusal, has the first opportunity to redeem. And so he says, do you want the land? And the guy says, of course I want the land. It's going to help me. And he says, oh, no, you've got to, you know, Ruth comes with it. This is a redemption situation. And that means it's not going to help you to get the land. It's going to hurt you because it's going to take the proceeds of purchasing it. And then, the, and then that child is going to inherit that. So you're never getting that money back. And some of your own inheritance is likely to go into it and so on. And so this near kinsman... This near redeemer says, I can't do it. And then he, it's not that he can't do it. I won't do it. I, I'm not going to do it. Okay? So he doesn't. So then Boaz does. Marries Ruth. They have a child, Obed. That child becomes the grandfather of David. See it? Okay, so that's the story. And the reason why it's in the Bible, ostensibly, is because it's part of the genealogy, the lineage of David. The reason why it's in the Bible actually is because God wants to show us a whole lot of things, and today we're going to see the last one. I'm sure there's several more than what we've covered, even though we've taken quite a long time on it. But this time what we're going to do is, I want you to see, you know what an allegory is? An allegory is a story that's really talking about something else. Okay? And it's trying to illustrate it by telling you a story up here that makes it clear down here what's, going, what's happening. Okay? So that's what we're going to do right now, is we're going to look at the way that this story is an allegory for the whole of this redemptive story that I told you earlier about the cross. But it's going to reveal some incredible insights, the last one of which is the one that is the blowaway. So with that said then, okay, I've got Josh and Joy Benjamin coming up here now. Okay, and the reason why I have Josh and Joy coming up here, first of all, they're recently married, so you've got to give them a hand for that. Okay. And you've got, and you've got to give them a hand, too, because I'm bringing them up here. So they really deserve a bigger hand than what you just gave them, okay? <laughs> I want you on the other side, okay? All right, now, the reason, when I got this illustration, I was asking the Lord, how do I bring this home? How do I get the heart of this out? Not just the information, but how do I, not just the head. How do I get the heart out? And all of a sudden, I, I mean, literally, when God gave me the revelation about how to get the heart, get to the heart of it, these are the two people that were in my head from the first moment that I had it. It wasn't that I had an idea and I thought, who should do it? He gave me it with these two in mind. So they said yes, and I want to thank you for being obedient, even though you didn't want to, okay? And, and, and I want to say something. I, as soon as I thought about the idea and them, I thought, yeah, God, that's the perfect two, and here's why. A lot of people do a lot of good and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and I'm sure that these two aren't perfect. I'm sure there's ways that I wouldn't even want to know about. But the truth is, these two are really good people. When you think about Boaz, when you think about Ruth in a modern setting, these would be two people that you can think about for the very most part. The, the choices that they've made, the way that they've made them, I've watched them for 15 years. I've watched them consistently choose God in amazing ways. Now, in the story that's an allegory, this is not just Boaz. Now, you can stay right there. This is not just Boaz. This is God, okay? Now, I just want to say, this makes a pretty good God for me, okay? He's kind of, you know, rock solid, you know what I mean? And he's good looking, and he's a good man, and, okay? So this is God, all right? 
So I'm down with that. I hope you are because, you know, to me, I look at him and I say, yeah, God, okay. <laughs> All right. Now, this is not just Ruth. This is the best part of humanity. We're going to see humanity in its other forms in the skit. But Ruth stands in for that part of humanity that God wants, that God is desiring, that God is saying is possible. So once again, see two good people and then the, what they're standing in for and all this kind of stuff. So here they go, okay? Now, what I got to do is I'm going to flip it from the map, okay? This is going to be Israel over here because that's just the way it is in my head. And if I get it backwards, I'll trip over myself. So this is Israel over here, and this is Moab over here. So we've got to start where we're starting. God is everywhere in the world, but the place he's chosen to, to, to reside, so to speak, is Israel. So God's over here in Israel, and Ruth is over here in uh, Moab, okay? All right. Now, I do want to get up here Ruth's sister. So Christy, where are you? Okay. Another really good person, because remember how good a sister this really is, Okay. Now I'm going to do something with her later that will make you think differently, but don't, don't think about that or her, okay? All right. Okay, so these are sisters, okay? Me and my sister. Actually, your sister's here. I probably should have used your sister, but I love Christy, and she just got married too, so you've got to give her a hand for that. <laughs> to an incredible guy, Tim. Okay, so those, those are the sisters. Now, we do have another character in this thing, and that's Naomi. So I've asked Chris Maddox to come up and be Naomi, and she really, you have to give her a big hand because she really doesn't like me right now, okay? Okay. All right. Now, there's one other person, and I need that one other person to quietly sort of bring yourself over here. You're not coming up yet. You've got to sit down there, okay? All right. All right. So, all right, that's actually David. So you can give him a hand as he's sneaky. You see how stealthy he is? <laughs> that's kind of his character, too, in the play, okay? All right. Now, now we're doing the allegory. Now, here's what it starts off, okay? This, the, Naomi stands in at the beginning of the story as all of us. And all of us, okay, are in relationship, we're in the land of, we're in the place that God wants us to be. And then something happens, right? Bad stuff happens, or stuff happens, or choices get made, and things happen, and the story, the allegory of the story is, there's a separation that's taking place. See, she's making a choice to go somewhere else, okay? She's, she's coming over here. Now, do note something. See, she has made a choice to go somewhere. We say, no, she had to go because of famine. Yes and no, right? I mean, just think of it allegorically. The idea is stuff happens in life, and it has us going away from him. So there's the allegory, okay? So she ends up, and, and the interesting thing is, we even end up in a land, even if we still like God, we can end up in a land very easily that is actually enemies with him. This is the state of a lot of Christians and a lot of non-Christians that actually are pretty good people. They're in a place, they don't even really know it, but they're in a place that is actually at war with God. They don't think of it that way. They themselves aren't that way. But that's the fire that they're dealing with. That's the place in which they're living. That's the place in which they're choosing. See it? That's the allegory again. All right? So, now what we've got is, um, I just want to make sure I'm in the right place. I can't read it. Okay. Now, yeah, here. She comes over here. She loses her husband. She loses her kids. Later on, she'll come back to her hometown, and she'll say these words, but this is what she's feeling over here. Don't call me Naomi. Naomi means pleasant. Don't call me Naomi, she responds. Instead, call me Mara, 
which means bitter. For the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. Losing a husband, losing some sons, that's not an untrue statement, is it? Now, to say that God is the one who did it, that may be a bit problematic. We could argue that theologically and so on, okay? And I would like to say God is not the one who crashes planes into buildings because he has a greater wonderful purpose for it. God is the one who can take the worst things that happen in a world that has been given free will and is falling apart because of it, because we continually exercise choices away from him. God is the one who can take anything that happens and so much bigger than it that he can cause all things to work together for good. That's what I think is the correct theological stance here, okay? But the bottom line is, is here she is, and she does get into a bit of a problem area. Now, I want to say something. Justine, two weeks ago, gave us a brilliant sermon about it's more important to be real than it is to fake being right. Really important sermon. If you haven't watched it, go back and watch it. It is incredible about how, when you're real, even if it's not exactly the right thing in the Lord, God will use that and He will make He will build a community through your vulnerability and transparency that it'll be people helping one another get to the truth. But just to show you this, here's what happens. She says, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Now, here's what's happened. At this point in time in the story, you've already made your choice to go this way, so you're bye-bye. Okay, now Ruth and you, you guys are coming this way, and they're headed back to God. And now, here she is, and she gets over here with Ruth and says what? I went away full, and I came back empty. What is Ruth, chopped liver? <laughs> See? In fact, by the end of the story... Because Ruth is so incredible, what will be said about her is, this daughter-in-law of yours, Naomi, who loves you so much, she's worth more than seven sons to you. See, now, now here's the truth I want us to get to. There's an allegory here. God is trying to communicate something to us. And here's what he's trying to communicate. Things may look really bad. You may think that he's out to get you. You may think that he's doing something terrible. You may think that things are, you may, you know, you not understand it. Things may be, you may lose your husband. You may lose your kids. You may lose all kinds of things. You may be in this terrible, terrible place. And you're thinking that God is mad at me and all this kind of stuff. And what you got to do, you, our minds will run to, the Lord has done this to me and he's judging me. And I'm on, and, and, but the truth is, what God is trying to show us is, is that he causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, which means this. He's always doing something. Always. She can't see it, but it's there. See it? So this is the allegory, okay? Now, in order to get us a little bit deeper, I gotta do something here, okay? Because I wanna, I wanna bring, we're going back in time, so whoop, whoop, whoop. okay, go back, okay? Now, now the sis is still here. Now, watch, see? Now. What's happening is, that in the allegorical, they're coming back to God. Now watch what happens, see? As they're coming back to God, she gets about right here, and she says, you guys got to go back to your family. And these guys say, no, 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 I'm not going to go back to my family. I love you. I'm going to stay with you and all this kind of stuff. But then finally, there is one person who, I told you already, this is a really good person, but she's being used for a role, okay? All right? <laughs> and, and the role that she's taking is, is that she makes a choice, as does a lot of people in the world. Christians and not, they're faced with a moment of choice, and even though they want something else, she wanted to go with her, the allegory is, is that in the end she makes a choice to not go with God. And that's who she stands in as, the sister 
The one that goes back is that one. Do you see it? This one makes another choice. What's the nature of the choice that she's making? Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Big, big thing here. What Christy represents in our story is, everybody comes from somewhere. You may not have been born in, in Christian America, quote-unquote, okay? You may have been born in India. You may have been born in Antarctica, or oh, I don't know, wherever, right? Not too many people born in Antarctica lately, but, Okay? <laughs> But you get my point. No matter where you are, no matter what your background is, no matter what the thing is, the, the truth is everybody's bringing some baggage with them. Everybody's bringing something with them. And in order to get to God, here's what's the allegory. In order to get to God, you have to do something wholesale. In all the world, come up here, Christy. In all the world, there's all these girls had another religion. Okay? And they could have easily... Tried to drag that religion over here to God and syncretized it. That's what people do all over the world still. They try and do that. It doesn't work, but they try. In other words, they're going to hold on to the things that they want to hold on to. Interesting thing about Christianity. If you look at what, the, what we call it the religious impulse in mankind. That's what the sociologists call it. And what that means is people just tend to feel like there's something wrong. That there's something missing. That there's something more. People have this sense of that. And what happens is, is while they have that sense of that, they sort of, they're, they're, they're sort of looking for it. And what they come to the conclusion of in a religious sense is, they come to the conclusion, there is something out there that's more, and if I were just better, I could get there. And so we come up with a religion like, say, Hinduism that says, uh, what you want to do is you just got to live your life really good. You're going to get lots of chances, and until you get it right, you're going to keep going back and try it again. And you're going to go from cockroach, and finally you get up to there to where you're good. And when you get really good, then you get back to God, see, because you made it back. Or you could take a Buddhist type thing and just say, what I need to do is empty myself of myself because I'm the problem. And if I could just empty myself of myself, then I would be able to actually connect with God. See, or you could go to rules type religions, Islam, for example. And you could say, if I would just do these things, then that would get me back to God. If I do, the, if I do all the rules, if I, you know, if I click all the boxes on the checkbox, on the check sheet, then God's got to let me in. Something along those lines. See, or I can work my way in, or I can, or I can, or I can. But all of these things are doing one thing, and here's, here's a way to sort of block it out. All of them are trying to get to God. They have a sense that there's a distance, and their, their, their solution is to try and get to him. Now, here's the way that we can put the lie to that, just really simply. If we're the problem, what makes us think that we can be the solution? Right? How stupid. If, if we're the problem, we're not the solution. <laughs> try as hard as you want, and God says, feel free to try every way you want. <laughs> and mankind does. But in the end, what you have to say is, I'm the problem, and there's nothing I can do about it. <laughs> I cannot fix it. I cannot make it better. I need help. See? And Christianity is the only religion where when the person says, I need help, God says, okay. <laughs> and sends you 
and draws you, sends somebody to draws you to him, which is what the allegory is here. See that? When she makes this, this call, your God will be my God, this is the call that the person in the world is not willing to make. I need to hold on to these ideas I've got. By the way, um, just let me, just a quick sidebar. In the Western world with its science and its prosperity, it's to the point now to where there's lots of people who can actually think, I don't feel like there's a problem. I don't feel like there's any distance, and I don't feel like I'm a problem. I may not do everything right, but I don't feel like it's a problem. And I don't believe that there's a God. And this is a very modern sensibility that comes out of this scientific and this prosperity moment. And I just want to say something. I have great heart for that because that was me. I was the guy that was living until I was 19 years old saying, there's no God. And it was a totally stupid thing in my mind. And, and I didn't have any, and there was nothing. And there was nothing. It was just stupidity to me. It really, it was. It just seemed so stupid. Can I, I'm saying that. I, I hope that doesn't offend anybody. And yet at the same time, I, I hope you can relate to it. I mean, I'm just telling you, I really felt like Christianity was stupid. And then one day, God revealed himself to me. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I realized where the stupid really was. Right? You know, and I just went, oh my gosh. Now, I didn't feel like it was so much a stupid thing as I felt like I just didn't see. There's this whole thing going on that I didn't see. And all of a sudden, I recognized, man, I'm a really big problem. This morning, coming to, before church, I was a really big problem. Not 20 years ago. I'm a really big problem on a continuing basis, and I love God with all my heart. And I'm a really big problem. <laughs> and I need help. Help me, God. That's the thing that changed my life. It wasn't anything I ever did. I did all kinds of things. And as a Christian, I tried to do all kinds of things too. And the only thing I've ever found that helped was to say, help. Help me, God. I tell you, I go on my walks, and I've told you this before, but let me just tell you, if you listen to the word that I speak more than any other single word, my prayer almost every single morning as I go out there and I say, help. Because I feel the need of it in a million different ways. That's why I'm out there. <laughs> help. <laughs> and then he comes and helps. <laughs> I got to speak to these people. What do you want me to say? Help. <laughs> And then he talks. And life comes. So the issue is, is that this person is the one that holds, this person represents that part of humanity that holds on to. I'm just going to hold on to what I'm going to hold on to. I still love her and I still have some sense of it all. But I'm going to hold on to the stuff that I want to hold on to. And you've been wonderful and so thank you very much. You're done, okay? <laughs> and that part of humanity is dismissed. Sorry. So sorry. Here's the person that made that choice. That incredibly precious choice. And so here they come. Now, they come over to here. And Naomi, you get to have a seat back here for just a second because this is about Ruth and Boaz now. Now, Naomi's back there because she's not doing so good and all this kind of stuff. And what happens is, is that... I want, I want, Boaz is here, and he's the landowner, and he's working too. But could you do kind of like, if you were picking up and gleaning so that you're kind of doing that? I need you to, okay. So she's, she's the one who's doing a back-breaking manual labor. She's the one who's doing something here that's difficult, right? Now what happens is, now watch this. This is a really nice part of the allegory, okay? Now watch. See, here's what happens. 
he finds out about her and the good things that she's done and so he lets even more go so now she's gathering up big amounts and she's doing really good and everything else and then she comes <laughs> okay and then she comes and she says to him okay how does this happen that you should pick me out and treat me so kindly don't you remember I'm a Moabite <laughs> I'm one of those people I'm not even Jewish for heaven's sakes right and what is his response Oh, I know about you. You're that one who helped your mother-in-law after the death of her husband and how you left your father and your mother in the land of your birth. And you've come to live amongst a bunch of total strangers. I love Boaz's heart and as he's standing in for God. You see what he does? She says, I'm the unclean one. I'm the foreigner. He says, no, I am. <laughs> I'm the stranger. You've come amongst strangers. We're the, you see, he identifies with her beautiful thing this is what God is doing he is after all of mankind but the point is is that he does that now I want to say something if we're using just one sec if we're using the allegory here I've just proven to you that the way you get into heaven is by works so that's what the allegory says right what happened good to her why did she get it because she treated her mom nice because she did a good thing right so if you do good things you get into heaven that's what everybody's hoping for Right? I don't have to worship God or accept Jesus Christ or say help. I just have to do good things and I get into heaven too. Oh boy. Let me say what this is actually saying allegorically. Nobody ever said that if you do good things, good things wouldn't happen back to you, even if you don't know God. I've told you the story before about Bubba's. This is a guy in Jackson. Now, he's actually moved across the street to a larger location because God has prospered him so much. But here's the key to Bubba. He runs a barbecue stand. How much money do you think a guy in a barbecue stand makes? I don't know, you know, it's probably enough to kind of provide for you and maybe for your kids and they might have to get a few student loans, right? I don't know how many people it is and I don't know if Bubba's still doing this, but I assume that he is. I want you to understand, Bubba has sent countless people through college. Why? Because they worked for him. And if you work for me, I'm going to do something for you. I paid him, paid him well. But you know what, if you work here and if you do this kind of thing, I'm going to do right by you. And he scholarships these kids. And he's been doing that for years and years and years and years. And there's nobody in Jackson as a restaurateur that makes more money than Bubba does. If you do the things that God likes, it's good. If you do the things that are just good things, good things come back to you. That is true, right? And it's not an ungodly thing. God himself says the stuff that you do is going to be rewarded. <laughs> God is not, here's the key, it ain't about good. It's about something much more important. It's about becoming part of a family. It's about being redeemed. See, here's the problem. When she's down, go back to harvesting or gleaning. When she's down here gleaning, what is she? Basically a servant, right? Well, that's what she is to him at this point in time. She's just a slave in, in all essence. Now, what happens is, he says, you're a good person. She says, I want to come under your covering. See, she's making a choice for God. I want to come under your covering. And he says, great, but there's a problem. What's the problem? This is a really good man, David. But for the purposes of our play, he's Satan. <laughs> now, he's not at all like Satan. He doesn't look at all like that, okay? <laughs> but I already told him beforehand that that was going to happen to him, okay? But, but what I want you to see is, Here's the problem, see? 
she's not, she can't give herself away because she's already been given away. There's somebody who has a nearer right to her. Do you see it? And with this person, she is a slave. Go ahead and do the slave thing. <laughs> Thank you, Joy. This really accomplished actress, and I just, I love you. All right. but, but see, she is a slave to him. And in fact, she's a slave to this degree. Now watch this. What will this redeemer do for her? Well, nothing. When he finds out he has to do something sacrificial, I can't do that. It would jeopardize something I want. Satan is not out to help anybody out. Satan is out to help himself out. And if he can get every single person in the world to choose not God, then long theology but short version, it gets him off the hook of the judgment that he made about not choosing God. That's why he's doing it. And the problem is, at this point in time, she's his. She can't give herself to him. She comes to him and says, she comes to Boaz, Boaz had finished eating and drinking, lay down at the far end of the pile of grain, went to sleep. Ruth came quietly, uncovered his feet, lay down. Around midnight, Boaz woke up, turned over, surprised to find a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. I'm your servant, Ruth, she replied. Spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family redeemer. Now, I just love the imagery of that, 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 you know, take your covering. Now, she's not saying I can take it and put it over. She's saying... Take your covering and place it over me. What happens when people say that to God? What does he say? Every single time, what does he say? Absolutely. <laughs> you bet. Now, I want to tell you something. There's a problem. You may not have known it. Most people walking around the world are in a place of slavery and servitude to Satan, to these things. They don't even know it. It doesn't seem like that to them. It's not until all of a sudden you find out and you go, oh my God, look at that. Now, we can see some evidence of it, right? Because there's these things that go on in our lives that we don't like about ourselves and we just can't seem to get over them. So that's the sort of manifest physical way that it comes out. But I just want you to see right here, the point is, is what's being said in the allegory, what's being said in the story is, she's his. There's somebody who's near. How is he going to get her back. How's he going to make her? Oh, shoot. I didn't get the later version. Okay. Uh, I must have put two in there. That's all right. I can fix it in myself, so don't do anything. Spread the corner of the cover for you're my redeemer. What does redeemer mean? What does it mean to redeem something? Buy it back. You, you put it in the pawn shop or whatever, and then that's theirs, and then you have to go and buy it back. You have to redeem it. You have to get it back. How does he get it back? That story we told. He gets it back by going to the cross. Oh, I'm not on the cross. I forgot because I didn't have it. But I'm on the, it's on the cross. See, it, it's the cross that buys her back. And here's the point. He may want to hold on to her as much as he can. But that price, go ahead. <laughs> now that's cool. But we're not there yet. We're right there, but we're not there yet. What did he want her back to be? 
Did he want her back to do some more gleaning or to be a servant or to be anything like that? What did he want her back to be? Family. Actually, not really. Not really. You know what he wanted her back to be? His bride. Not just his kid. Well, there's a whole lot of kids, and you know, how could you love them all? He wanted her back to be his bride. That most intimate, possible human relationship that God is speaking about allegorically when he says, this is my relationship between you and me. This is how I view it. This intimacy. This closeness. Now, we've been talking about how I think you guys can go. Thank you, okay? Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah. We've been talking about how there's three things that they already got blown away by, but I just want to say that there's a fourth here too. Consider the angels right now. Consider what they're thinking. They see all these other things happen. The one, two, three, and four. Infinite, all-powerful creator became a baby. That was amazing. That was unbelievable. And then he died? Oh, my God. I can't comprehend this. What is this all about? I don't understand. What's going on, God? And then he rises again. Oh, my God. This is absolutely fantastic. This is wonderful. This is incredible. He's leaving people captive. But he's leaving people captive for what end? And I want to say we don't understand it. And the angels are blown away by it. You know that God that they know? In the fire and in the purity and in the holiness and all of the stuff. And they can't even, you know, they have to cover themselves even to come into his presence. You know that God? Here's what God is doing with all of us. He's bringing us right into the center of himself. I think the angels are going, what? Didn't you watch the real God? Didn't you see what they're like? <laughs> Didn't you see them? How can you, you, I know you and I know them and them ain't you, right? But God's plan is bigger than anybody can ever understand. It's bigger even than we can begin to comprehend, but we do begin to comprehend it when we start to understand something. What God was doing was he was bringing us back not to be slaves, not to be servants, not even really to be sons and daughters. He was bringing us back to be one, to be married, to be in this most intimate possible relationships that could ever be. That's what he was bringing us back for. <laughs> this is what his goal is. This is better than what it was at the garden. This is all kinds of bad things have happened and it's brought about this resurrection power. Worst thing in the world that could ever happen is, is that we would kill Christ. Best thing that ever happened in all the world was that we killed Christ. Because it made possible this, what we're talking about right now. That people could come to this place of yelling out, crying, help, bring me home, bring me back, bring me to you. And when we do, we become one with him utterly, completely, fully, richly, and forever. 
I bring you good news, say the angels. It will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord. And when they say that, I think they think they know. I think that they think they know all that that means. But here's the truth: He has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David, and you'll recognize him. He's a baby wrapped in a manger, and suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, "Glory to God in the highest heaven. Peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased." And I want us to read that now with the understanding that we have on the other side of that moment. I think when they said that they were speaking absolutely the truth, they were being faithful messengers of God, and they didn't understand what the fullness of it meant. So in Jesus' holy and precious name, God, we come before your throne right now, and what we do is, is that we thank you and we praise you. We lift you up. We say thank you, God. we having a new appreciation of what Christmas is all about. It's not just coming to be with us. It is coming to make us be with you. It is not just Emmanuel, God, with us. It is you making us to be with you. I can't even say the word even though the scripture does about you make us to be like you. You make us to be God like you, not God in the same way and that we can do like Satan did and use it perversely, but God in the sense that we have become truly and utterly and completely and fantastically one with you. This is mind-blowing. This is surpassingly wonderful. And in Jesus' holy and precious name, we come before your throne right now and say, thank you.